This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review. It is Tuesday. We are talking about abdominal wall defects, gastroschisis, um, phallocele. Um, Thank you for that great review yesterday, Daphna. My pleasure. And so today um, we're going to talk about some history. I can't help myself with the history, (laughs) but and then talk about some embryology. So... um, I have a feeling that we should probably just almost like as a disclaimer say these things. So just if you if you if you skipped the Monday episode because you thought I was gonna ramble about history and now you're finding yourself on a Tuesday and That's <laughs> right. here I am. That's right, we mixed it up. <laughs> but anyway, um are this uh, central abdominal wall defect of various sizes. And basically, it's the one that has like this uh, membrane around the defect, okay? And the underlying abdominal organs are protected from the exposure to the amniotic fluid. Gastroschisis is when the actual intestine is out, there's no protection, and um, the eviscerated organs are basically suspended in amniotic fluid. So now that we've, we've situated everybody, let's go into it. So I was wondering how far back was I going to be able to find <laughs> references to gastroschisis? Let's hear and it. 1547. Uh-huh. Nice. <laughs> I actually, I'm going to share that with you because I went... Thank, thank God for Google digitalization of, of books. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but uh, hold on, share. There we go. But yeah, so I went through the PDF. It's, wow. it's in, I think it's in Latin, but like this is like the first diagram of, of a baby. I don't know why the head is so poorly shipped, but you can see that like there's a hole. It's in, a it, difficult labor here. <laughs> <laughs> there's Lots of molding. Ca- Lots of molding. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so... Um, I have to give credit where credit is due. I mean, there was this article um, in the seminars in pediatric surgery written written by a French uh, pediatric surgeon named Sylvie Baudouin, who actually is the one who uh, sent me on that path to this text by Conrad Wolfart, who uh, described either gastroschisis or emphalocele, it's not really clear, in 1547. Now, moving on, um, in still in the 16th century, Ambroise Paré, which is basically one of the French, uh, they're one of great physicians and, and formerly like a, a barber surgeon. They used to be barbers, mm-hmm. right? So he too described like an emphalocele and, and he was making the <laughs> only, assumption. Only one person was allowed to use the sharp, the sharp tool. That well, that's what my, yeah, that's why the history teacher in France used to tell us. You had two choices. It was either uh, the barber or the butcher. Mm, These right. are the people with the knives, Wielding and the... <laughs> people pick the barbers. <laughs> um, and I think I may have said that, but if you're interested about the history of barber surgeons, you know how, like, if you go to a barber shop, they have like this pole that turns with the blue and the red colors. It used to be that the mm. barbers used to dry their 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 uh, towels that were soaked with blood, and so they had these red they had these red uh. things drying on the outside, and it became the pole. And it's sort of the legacy of the barber surgeons is that now the the hair salon and the barber shops have these these red things that are sort of twisting yeah. just like it was supposed to twist in the wind back then. 
Very uh, interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating. I did not know that. So, but Ambroise Paré thought that maybe this is just due to like difficult delivery. I'm assuming that maybe he was thinking that like if you pull the kid too hard, you rip everything apart. I don't know. But regardless, um, you really have to get to 1638, um, where um, there was in a in a French surgical treatise on um, on on case reports in surgery, and it describes in there an infant born with intestines coming outside its belly. And the explanation that they offer at the time in, in the 17th century is that this happened because the pregnant mother had witnessed a cat being eviscerated mm -hmm. by a carriage passing by in the street. And so the, the look of the cat being run over by this carriage probably triggered something in the mother that caused her baby to be sort of mm -hmm. eviscerated like that as well. Um, I thought that was... That was it's, it's cute. It's so wrong, but it's just it's like, all right, sure, sure. Like, Cute's one word for it. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's simplistic, and it's, it's like, oh, she saw a cat. Uh, mm -hmm. It's like, whatever. How did they even remember that? Anyway, then after the late 18th century, um, the, the sad part about the history of abdominal wall defects is that these kids were really classified as having these monstrosities, and I think that's just a horrendous name uh, to use, but there's this French... A naturalist named Etienne Geoffroy Saint-Hilaire, which is extremely hard to pronounce even for me. Mm. Um, but but he was just describing them. But and even though he he called these monstrosities, I thought what was interesting is that his son, Isidore Saint-Hilaire, in 1805, became a zoologist and was really interested in how does nature deviate from normal, right? Mm. And he had a much more scientific approach. And so what what was interesting is that he postulated that these conditions appeared in gestation at an early stage when the abdominal viscera were still located within the base of the cord. And so I thought that was very interesting that um, despite the, the questionable characterization of these defects by his father, he sort of pretty much was right on track. And he further noted that the frequent additional heart malformation, malformations great variation of protruding organs, and uh, stated that the wide abdominal wall defect should play a role in the pulmonary impairment observed in live-born babies. So he was, he was really uh, making astute observations about some of the things you've talked about yesterday about the, the difficulty in ventilating these babies. Um, and interestingly, he also mentioned some lateral forms of the defect, which again could mean that he was looking at both gastroschisis and and mm. phalliceles. Now, the first the first documented uh, report of an abdominal wall defect being corrected dates back to 1913, and and thereafter, it looking at multiple papers, it's really difficult to see. There's a lot of case reports that are being published here and there. And it's not really clear what people are looking at, whether it's gastroschisis, whether it's emphalocele. And it's in 1953, sort of four centuries after the first description, that we have these two authors, uh, Dr. Moore and Dr. Stokes, who, who've written extensively about this topic in those, in those years, in the 50s. Um, and they provided a firm body of evidence, and they clearly were able, and they were able to clearly separate the emphalocele and the gastroschisis. And the, the emphalocele, which was the extra abdominal herniation within a sac, out of which emerges the cord from the gastroschisis, which is a para-umbilical, smooth-edged defect without sac or remnants. Now, by doing this, they're basically paving the way for future investigations and, and understanding of these different malformations. However, um, they also planted the seed for some long-lasting controversy in this topic 
by stating that the umbilical cord was never involved in gastroschisis. And they may seriously have impeded the progress of understanding how the gastroschisis develops, but you'll see that we still really haven't figured out what's happening. So um, in terms of some of the first theories as to how those gastroschisis specifically develops, um, there's some theories of malformative development of the abdominal wall that basically said that there's some, some adhesion and some amniotic displacement. This, this, they called even this the teratogenic pressure, that basically the baby is put in a position during the gestation that basically the belly is pressing on an area and so it doesn't get to develop. Um, many people, and that's still... Uh, Many people have postulated that the gastroschisis is just a prenatally ruptured amphalocele. Uh, and you've mentioned that yesterday. And, um, and Moore and Stokes, who mentioned that this was, those, those were, were the gastroschisis uh, was an abdominal wall malformation that was independent of the cord, they were saying that it resulted from the arrest, the developmental arrest or distortion of the myotome migration as a probable cause for gastroschisis. Uh, some, uh, yeah, so that's, so let's get into the actual, what's the current evidence on, on the development of both emphalocyles and gastroschisis. So the first thing I want to do is let's go over basic development embryology of the digestive system. And it's a very visual process. So the podcast may not be the best medium, but you'll see it on the presentation on the website. We'll have a little video and we'll have a bunch of videos actually. So where, where do we begin? Week three of development. And I think one of the things that my students liked about my teaching of embryology is that it's very much not scientific. So the, <laughs> bear with me. So the, we'll the, see about that. We'll, we'll see. see the third week of gestation is basically this time where you, you have the formation of the trilaminar germ disc where you actually have um, the making of the endoderm, the mesoderm, and the ectoderm. So we all know about these three layers. Now, during week four, it's at this stage of development where basically the embryo is like an Oreo cookie, right? So you have two layers on top and bottom, ectoderm, mesoderm, uh, ectoderm, and endoderm. And then in the middle, you have the mesoderm. And, um, and I'm talking about top and bottom as if you were looking at it on a picture. Now, what's interesting is that the endoderm, which is the bottom part, bulges downward, right? And the ectoderm and the mesoderm balloon up slightly. And this little Oreo cookie uh, then starts looking more like a mushroom, right? So you have um, a top layer that is at the cap of the mushroom, if you, if you think about it this way, which is composed of the ectoderm and the mesoderm. And at the bottom, you have the endoderm. Now, during the remainder of week four of development, the ectoderm and the mesoderm, so the top part, the, the, the cap of that little mushroom, they, they grow much faster than the endoderm. And what that ends up doing is that it ends up that it wraps around uh, the endoderm and is actually um, hugging the, the side of the endoderm. It's growing, it's growing like it's ballooning. And um, we have these two arms that are coming to hug the endoderm are actually the lateral folds. And they basically come and they pinch at the level of what will be the umbilical cord, closing off the rest of the mesoderm and creating basically the gut and the abdominal cavity inside. Now, during week six of development, the uh, intestine develop inside the abdominal cavity, but as we know, the intestines are very long, 
and the abdominal cavity at this stage of development is too small. And so the intestines have to find room somewhere else and they herniate out into the umbilicus and continue development there. Now, as the primary intestinal loop herniates into the umbilicus, it so there's a bunch of rotations that are going to happen. And um, so as the primary intestinal loop herniates into the umbilicus, it rotates around the axis of the superior mesenteric artery by 90 degrees. And uh, we will have a picture there. Now, um, I'm, I'm going to talk about, so then the, I'm going to, I'm going to keep, I'm going to skip that point just so that it's not too confusing. Um, meanwhile, uh, the midgut continues to differentiate. There's lengthening of the jejunum and the ilium, um, and they're being thrown into the series of folds called the jejunal ileal loops and the expanded, uh, cecum sprouts like a, wor a worm-like, uh, appendix, right? Now. When we reach week 10, the midgut has to retract in the abdomen. And the mechanism responsible for the rapid retraction of the midgut into the abdominal cavity during week 10 is not completely understood, but may involve an increase in the size of the abdominal cavity relative to the other abdominal organs. But what's very interesting is, is that the, as the intestinal loop re-enters the abdomen, it has to do one more rotation. Uh, and so it will rotate an additional 180 degrees so that now the retracting colon has traveled a total of 270 degree relative to the posterior wall of the abdominal cavity. And so that's where this 270 degrees rotation that we've, we've read about comes from. Um, it's an initial 90 degree rotation plus an additional 180 degree rotation. And I have this video, this YouTube video that I will put on the, on the presentation where this guy has like this plasticky has this plasticky thing and shows you how the, the thing happens. I'm going to pull it up for you. Let's see if we can, can you see that? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. he has, he has this whole thing and like, he basically oh, walks that you is cool. and he shows you like how everything ends up in the right place. It's a lot of plastic that he has, but anyway, you guys will see it. And, uh, and it's oh, kind of nice. To watch that. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, so this is where we are. Um, um, so interestingly enough, after the large intestine returns to the abdominal um, cavity, the dorsal mesenteries of the ascending colon and the descending colon, they shorten. So the, right, if you think about it, the, these mesenteric arteries had to be very long to go from the abdominal cavity through the umbilicus to, to irrigate and to perfuse the gut that was in the, in the umbilicus. But now as they're retracting, they're pulling everything back as well. And uh, it's, it's bringing these organs into contact with the dorsal body wall where they adhere and become secondarily retroperitoneal. So that's the idea. In summary, we have this, this mushroom structure where we have on top the ectoderm and the mesoderm. And there it's growing and pinching the bottom, which is composed of the endoderm. It creates this canal where the intestines are going to uh, herniate through to continue development. and during basically week 10 of development, that's when this gut is going to retract through a series of rotation that eventually lead to the position of the intestine and the, as we know it. So what causes the emphalocele? So one possibility of why the emphalocele uh, happens is that the herniated bowel does not fully retract during week 10 into the abdominal cavity, 
and thus remains herniated. And uh, that's what we see on, on exam, basically, right? So as it was supposed to retract, it gets stuck and, and it stays in that umbilical warden jelly covering. Another possibility is that the lateral body folding and fusion fail to occur properly during the fourth uh, to eighth week, creating a body wall weakness that allows the bowel to later herniate as it grows. And so what does that mean? As we were talking about this mushroom with its cap just growing and, and hugging the bottom of the, of the structure, which is made of the endoderm, if these lateral folds don't complete their migration and they don't pinch the endoderm the way they're supposed to, then you might leave some room there for something to herniate later mm -hmm. on. A third possibility is failure of proper migration and differentiation of the mesoderm, normally forming the connective tissue of the skin and musculature of the ventral body wall, again, resulting in body wall weakness. Um, and because this is of this abnormal embryologic development, there's a high rate of associated defects and chromosomal anomalies, as you mentioned yesterday. The umbilical stalk persists as a broad-based protective sac composed of peritoneum and amnion separated by a layer of warden jelly. There's other forms of emphalocele, right? And, and we mentioned that. So there's, there's a potential to have an epigastric type of emphalocele in which you have a sternal cleft. You have uh, ectopia cordis with cardiac defects, uh, pericardial defects, and diaphragmatic hernia. And that is known as the pentalogy of uh, Cantrell. And then you can have infra-umbilical emphalocele that's often associated with bladder or cloacal extrophy. Uh, it happens in conjunction with an imperforated anus and spinal defect to form the OEIS association, emphalocele, extrophy of the bladder, imperforated anus, and spinal defects. Okay, so now let's talk about gastroschisis. Mm -hmm. Gastroschisis, most places skip it because there's no validated theory as to what mm -hmm. happens. There's one that I like, but... <laughs> It's not really helpful to the audience, uh, but it's highly controversial. We're not exactly sure what happens during gastroschisis, and there are many theories, and there's a lot that has been written on the subject. Um, I will add a little table that I found in, uh, I think it was a journal out of Colombia, Colombia, the country, and they basically summarized all these different uh, theories, and it there's just goes to show There's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. You know how it's like you read the, the board review textbooks and they're like, oh, it's it's still unknown. And you're like, yeah, it's unknown, but we have a good idea as to really what's going on, right? It's like, no, we don't. In this case, no, we, we really don't. So um, there are a few theories. I'm going to go through three of them. Um, the first one is this idea that there's an involution of the right umbilical vein, right? So the umbilical vein, if you don't recall, you start off during development with both a right and a left umbilical vein. And eventually, the right is supposed to go away, and the left umbilical vein is supposed to remain, um, and then um, and then eventually find its path through the liver to the to create the ductus venosus. But the involution of the right umbilical vein creates a potential weak spot at the junction of the right aspect of the umbilical ring and the abdominal wall. So if that process uh, that process could be responsible. And this may allow for rupture and bowel herniation. And this was a theory that was posited in 1980 by Peter DeVries, a pediatric surgeon from California. 
I was looking at if he was related to the De Vries from Holland, who does a lot of neurology, and no, I couldn't find any link aside from the last name. You like uh, you like ancestry also a lot. It helps me remember. <laughs> if I can build a story around a random medical fact, it helps me remember. <laughs> Um, another theory is that this is related to like um, some exposure to like teratogenic uh, uh, substances such as solvents, colorants, aspirin, ibuprofen, pseudoephedrine, and cocaine, all of which have been associated with an increased risk of gastroschisis. Um, many of these substances, as you've noticed, are vas vasoconstrictive agents supporting this idea that a vascular uh, contribution to the pathogenesis of gastroschisis is is, is the third one involves genetic influences that have been implicated in gastroschisis, and that really comes from the fact that it's been reported as sort of a familial occurrence, uh, including uh, multiple affected sibling, vertical transmission from mother to son. And so these, these reports really um, make you wonder whether there is not some genes that uh, mutations, something that could be responsible. And so I'll put that table with all the different theories of the uh, origins of gastroschisis in the in the in the presentation. I'll also put that right versus left umbilical vein stuff because I had to look it up again. And um, and yeah, and so these are where we stand in terms of the theories. I have a lot of images and I have mm -hmm. a lot of videos, so uh, we'll post all that. But right, it does look like a little mushroom, right, Daphne? Yeah, right? absolutely. Okay. Good. Yeah. No, I think it's. I think it was a really good description, and actually. You know, I know people listen to us in the car and do the dishes, but um, the resources are really good. So I hope people will go and look at the board review resources. This is so what you put together, especially with these um, embryology uh, pictures is really thorough. Yeah. Thank you. Well, all right. I'll see you tomorrow, Daphna. Sounds good. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUpodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.